and it was an incredible run. So it was about six six years where I was really kind of in the driver's seat of that thing before selling it. But it's where I really learned business though, because on the real estate side, it's all about the financial leverage and doing deals and the operator, the sponsor, you know, the entrepreneur really is kind of at the center of that business. Whereas with Brightergy, I was able to quickly learn that you can leverage human capital, you know, rather than financial capital to really scale a business and build systems. So I really enjoyed that part of it, building the executive team. But man, it was it was definitely a roller coaster. Hello, everyone. This is Chris Powers, and I want to thank you for joining me on the Fort Podcast. This show is an open-ended discussion and journey telling the stories of leaders, founders, CEOs, and people making an impact through business investing and entrepreneurship. We take an unconventional approach that leans into thoughts and ideas not often publicly discussed. We'd love to hear from you by emailing us at thefortpodcast at gmail.com. Thank you again. Hey guys, it's Chris. Thank you for joining me for The Fort. I'm really excited to have my friend Adam Blake with me today. Uh, Adam has been a huge inspiration to me for the last 16 years. He is who taught me how to buy my first piece of real estate and really gave me the confidence that I could do it at a really young age. And we've just carried on a great relationship over the last 16 years. Uh, sharing stories, ideas, thoughts. And so today's episode, we talk about that story and the successes that Adam has had in real estate, solar, technology, exiting multiple businesses, how he has changed over time. Um, And then we finish it off with what he's seeing in the world right now and what that might lead to for him in the future. Adam, thank you for joining me today, man. Yeah, happy to be here. I think to get started, one of the, uh, to set the stage is just kind of to talk about your story, kind of growing up and what motivated you to become an entrepreneur. Sure. So yeah, you know my story pretty well, Chris. So if there's something you want me to double click on, you know, feel free to, to ask me to do so. I was born in San Francisco. I moved around quite, quite a bit as a kid, spent some time in Nashville, Chicago, ultimately spent most of my time in Kansas City. So that's really where I consider myself from. I had a great kind of normal childhood growing up, but my family really hit a rough patch when I was in high school. And the story there is my dad worked for the same company his entire career, basically. He started climbing telephone poles, got into sales, and then sales management working for a big telecom company. And then during the telecom bust of early 2000s, he he lost his job. And that set off a sequence of events that just caused a lot of pain and hardship. We moved houses a few times, then into an apartment. My mom went from being a stay-at-home mom to working a retail job. My dad wasn't able to really find a job, really impacted him just emotionally and mentally, psychologically. And then he ultimately got a job at a school cafeteria at one point. And there was this one life-changing event that happened. And like the memory of this, this event is so clearly just seared into my brain. It's something that I have kind of learned as I've gone on, it really kind of was a transformational kind of moment for me when I was in high school. And my dad basically sat me down and walked me through what to do if he were to die. The life insurance situation, what I should and should not say to that person, even how it might happen. And I don't really remember like my response in the moment or even like what happened shortly thereafter. But I just know that it was it was a really critical event and it just kind of lit a fire 
And I think from a mindset standpoint, I kind of just perked up a little bit and, and almost like went into survival mode. I, I started doing a bunch of random things to try and make money to take the burden off my parents. And I don't know. I just think I, I look back at that. And it, it's like, a, it, it's been a major source of inspiration for me. There's so much pain there. And, you know, that's one of the things that I've kind of learned over time is, is, you know, obviously being an entrepreneur is extremely difficult and a roller coaster, you know, but for me, I just kind of like would go back to that moment and think, man, that, I was obviously very painful. I don't ever want to put myself, my family in this type of situation. So that was something that, that really drove me. You know, the other thing in, in kind of height, my high school years that ultimately I think had an impact on what I've gone on to do is I went to a really great high school, uh, Rockers high school. It's an all guys private school, went to school with a lot of kids with wealth and it kind of gave me a taste, something to strive for. I was always talking to my kids' parents or business owners and it admired a lot of them. After that event happened that, that I just talked about, I got into real estate and I read all these Rich Dad, Poor Dad books by Robert Kiyosaki and, and a bunch of other books. I sold knives for a year and a half during high school. And that was an incredible experience for me because I just learned about rejection. I didn't, you know, I just learned about cold calling, all that good stuff. And ultimately, you know, great experience for me. So yeah, high school was definitely like an important, important period in the sense that it kind of just lit a fire under my ass to really want to pave my own way and do something entrepreneurial. So that was like 2000 or 99 to 2003 kind of timeframe was high school. So you came, you, you ultimately ended up going to TCU, which was a, again, another private university, uh, expensive with, uh, probably a lot of wealth around you. And I believe it was on a, a football scholarship. Is that right? So no, I was, the reason I went to TCU is I had a pretty significant academic scholarship and I was able to be a preferred walk-on on the football team. And at that point in time, I was naive and I thought, I kind of felt like I had something to prove because my last two years of high school, I wasn't really able to play because I was always hurt. So yeah, I did the whole preferred walk-on thing, but that was really only for one semester. And then pretty quickly, I learned that this isn't, I'm not going to get a full scholarship and I got to make some money. So I kind of knew going into it, like halfway through the season, it wasn't the long term for me, but. I basically just played one season and then was done. And before we jump into TCU, I don't want to drop just the conversation that you had had with your father, but what, how old were you when you talked to him about that? Probably like 16. So you're 16. Your dad kind of lays out something that you never really want to think about. Did it, did it hit you in the moment or did it like sink in as the days followed? And, and did you ever kind of follow back up with him on that? Or was it just something that you talked about and you kind of never wanted to talk about it again? So it just kind of, you know, remained a silent Man. topic. Yeah, it's one of those things like I wouldn't say it was a silent topic. I mean, there it was a very painful. It wasn't like a single event. I mean, it was, like I said, a sequence of events all around just... I know I can just see the depression, the, the stress, the, you know, the financial hardship. So no, I mean, it was definitely kind of a series of events and, you know, he never you know acted on anything. So, you know, that's, that's great. And we have a, still have a great relationship to this day, but it was you know, obviously a very, very rough couple of years. All right. So you get to TCU and, um, the, the, the Adam, I know I, I you were a sophomore when I was a freshman, but by the time I got there, 
Um, you didn't waste any time when you got to TCU. You had won a global entrepreneur award. Uh, really, it revolved around your business plan of buying rental properties around TCU. And this was all kind of self-money that you made, creative financing, building a company. Let's kind of start there. How did how did the real estate kind of company start coming together and what did you do with it? So it really started the fall of my freshman year. I overheard some guys on the football team kind of complaining about not having a house off campus for the spring semester. And I ended up basically finding a house for them and making some money. Just, it was a couple hundred bucks. And through it was just this one deal. And through that transaction, I basically learned that there was a very inefficient market around TCU with landlords and students trying to find housing. So this is before things would just be posted on Zillow or whatever people post college rentals on at the time. So I saw an opportunity there. And then by the spring, I went, you know, went home or whatever for that, for that winter. And then the spring is really when I came back to school and started, started grinding. And the initial plan was to just basically help students find housing. I quickly was able to kind of make some deals with some landlords where instead of just taking a small fee, I would jack up the rent and then take a percentage of the increase. So what you might do is if a house is running for a thousand and I could maybe put a flat screen TV, which all the kids wanted at the time in there and get the rent up to 2000, I would take like 50% of that increased rent over an annual period. And then I would also do the property management for them. So I did that. I don't know how many deals, maybe five or 10 deals the spring of my freshman year. And then I also bought four properties. And the way that I, I did that was I made a little bit of money from these commissions on brokerage. I had student loan cash advances. And the way it, this is back in a time where you could like literally get a check from your school and you had to like fill out this paperwork. And, you know, on there, I, I'll never forget this. It's like, what do you need the money for? And I was like, housing. <laughs> and it just was super vague. I didn't technically lie, you know? So, yeah. So I got some of that money. I think it was like 15,000 bucks. And then I I borrowed some money from a fraternity brother's family and, and did a, a, a pretty good deal for them where we I basically found these four homes, had them all pre-rented before we closed on them, and then was able to get some of these like no income, no asset verification loans. They did require down payments. So, you know, at this point I'm 18 years old and I obviously had no income, there are no assets, whatever, but I was able to get these, these, this down payment money to use that with, you know, from some credit card stuff, credit card cash advances, student loans, and then borrowing some money. So that's how I bought my first couple houses. And, you know, it wasn't as simple as that, but it, that, you know, that was after probably dozens of meetings trying to like raise money from banks, from loan comp or mortgage brokers, from individuals, but that's ultimately kind of where it landed. And that, you know, that really kicked off all the student housing stuff. And then throughout the course of college, you know, as you well know, Chris, you and I did some deals together, but I went on to buy a couple hundred houses in and around the, the Dallas-Fort Worth area. When was the first time that you actually like did a deal that made you some real money or the first time you ever felt like, damn, I actually have some money now? Um, did that, did you flip something? Did that come that first year? Was it sophomore year? But when did you actually have like a net worth or some cash in the bank that you started feeling good about? Man, I think that would probably be more like my junior or senior year because I mean, even like my sophomore, my junior year, I was doing maintenance and billing back owners for it, you know? So I was, I was grinding you know, didn't really have a lot of money. And anytime I would flip something, I would immediately go buy something else. 
And then the, then the name of the game became, I, you know, went to affiliated bank and some of those other banks there and set up these credit lines where, you know, I'd put like a hundred grand or 200 grand in a CD and basically be able to, you know, leverage it at 90%. So I don't know. I don't think I actually really made any money until like real money. I, I guess it depends. I mean, look, like I went from a point where it was like literally negative money to, I'll never forget. I had, I had like a thousand or 2000 bucks in my bank account. My brother was like, Oh my God, Adam, you have a thousand dollars. Like, I mean, seriously, so that, I don't know, that might've actually, that probably happened my freshman year, but then I don't know. The next major event to me was, was probably when I had my first million. And that was, I don't know, maybe like 2009 time period or 2008, probably 2008. But that was, that was kind of like another major milestone for me. When you were raising that money freshman year at 18 years old and talking to your pledge brothers family, like how did you convince them that you were 18, but you were worthy of an investment? I mean, besides the grind and the hustle and the work ethic, is there, was there something specific that, that made it happen or, you know, you just, the, the numbers worked and the deal worked and it was hard to say no to. Yeah. The deals were teed up on a silver platter. It was like, okay, you're going to buy this house. I, dude, I remember the addresses, like literally the actual, the full addresses, the details, like one of them was a house that I bought for 85,000 bucks. It was like a three bedroom and pretty easy. I made it a four bedroom and it would, it, I think it might've been renting for like 800 bucks. And I was able to take the rent to 1800 bucks or something like that. That's an like $85,000 house, you know, with your payments and everything of like five, 600 bucks a month. So I did that on four different deals with the numbers that good, had them basically pre-leased. So it was, it was pretty compelling, low risk, you know, type deal. Yep. Did. Okay. And then tying that back to the entrepreneur of the year award, how did you even get involved with that? Cause I feel like from my perspective and from a lot of people on the outside, that was like what kind of put you on the stage. Yeah. You know, it kind of gets in that whole topic of, of, of just the media and attention and whatnot. And, at that point in my life, that was, that was important because credibility was everything. So there was, it, it's this program called the global St student entrepreneur awards. That's, it's done by EO entrepreneurs organization. And it's a global thing where people from all over the world apply and they have like local, regional and national competitions. At the time that I won, it wasn't as big of a deal as it is now, but yeah, I, I applied through for, you know, basically that, that first company I had that was doing property management. And I think it was the end of my sophomore year that, that I won that. And that, that just helped from a credibility standpoint, a ton of media, you know, came after that. And then, you know, my view towards the media changed over, over time. Kind of once I got that credibility bump, it was, you know, I was able to raise money, do some bigger deals. And then it was just, you know, stay away from the media. Yep. Uh, and for those listening, I met Adam literally at a college party and had heard about his story and had read about him in the TCU paper. And you might have forgotten about this, but I haven't. I asked you to go to lunch. I think we went a couple weeks later uh, at Chipotle down on Hewlin. And you kind of laid out a roadmap and gave me some inspiration on some things I could do to buy my first house and I will just never forget. I left it and I was determined that I wasn't going to stop until I, I bought a house and the rest was history. So again, I've told you that a hundred times, but thank you for going to Chipotle with me. It, of course, man. I remember your life. first deal. It was a house on Corto, wasn't it? 3511. <laughs> you owned, I think, 3500 across the street. <laughs> I think it was 3504. Yeah. <laughs> next door, but yeah. Oh man, that was 16 years ago. It's crazy. 
All right. So college ends and you kind of mentioned the first million. Was that on the oil and gas kind of Barnett Shale deal? Um, yeah. Yeah. Totally random. So by that time, you know, on on paper, at least I, I probably was worth, you know, a couple million bucks or something like that. But again, it was just all tied up in doing more and more deals. I built some duplexes in Fort Worth. I started even doing some commercial property management. So I was slowly kind of inching my way up into to bigger deals and I mean, that's a long story on the whole drill site thing, but you know, there was a boom in Fort Worth during that period of time from like, let's just call it 04 to 2008, where people were leasing minerals for 30,000 bucks an acre. And it was totally insane. And you were trying to find these five acre sites in the middle of the city to put a well on. And there was this one particular site in Arlington. So I, I basically saw all these people in Fort Worth making a ton of money. And these were guys that I kind of met through my real estate networking. So I, I just learned a lot more about it had some friends that were landmen for, for some of the local companies there. And I kind of learned about the strategy of buying a drill site. So there was this deal in Arlington. that was like basically a house on five or six acres and it was like 350 grand or something like that. And that was one of the deals that I, I borrowed the money from Kelly Keller and they loaned hundred percent of the money on it. And I was able to quickly flip it for like one and a half million bucks or something like that. So that was really the first time where I just had a bunch of cash kind of in the bank. And that's, you know, what I did, I used that money to go, you know, basically use to do that Dallas condo deal and some other bigger apartment deals. So 08 was actually a, a good year for you, but describe kind of the rest of 08, 09, that first kind of uh, major recession that, that you went through. Were there, were there other things that didn't work out or what did 08, 09 look for you? Or did that deal kind of make it all worthwhile and 08, 09 wasn't as big of a deal for you? So that, that was the bright spot there. You know, then it was shortly after that is when the market and everything just kind of started crashing. And I had, I don't know, it, at least a hundred, maybe 130 or something like that. Single like, like homes at that point in time. And these were homes that were, you know, anywhere from like 65,000 to $200,000 starter homes. And the financing for those homes just totally dried up because all these people were doing these, you know, 0% down, 3% down type loans. So I wouldn't say I got crushed, but you know, my paper net worth went down 80%. I never lost a deal to a bank or anything like that. Never missed a payment, but it was brutal, man. Like a year and a half period was very brutal. And that's, you know, and, and but at the same time, it created some really great buying opportunities. And was that's how I was able to get into doing bigger commercial deals. I always knew that I didn't want to do the small time single family stuff forever. I mean, you know, I've talked about this very quickly. It was like, this is a nice business. You can, you can do it yourself and control costs, but it's just not the type of thing you can scale or really outsource property management and, and really create a sizable business. And the barriers to entry are so low, you can't retain good quality people for very long. So I always knew that I wanted to do commercial deals. So yeah, I, I, I think I did my first deal in 2000, like my first big deal in 2009. And that's when I probably bottom of the market. Yep. Piazza condos in Dallas, Texas. That was my that was my first or my second deal. Yeah. Let's yeah, just like walk that? through that deal because buying a busted condo deal at the bottom of the market is, you know, it takes it takes guts. Like how wh why was that the deal and uh what happened there? So, you know, the deal was I wanted to do apartments because I had kind of built this property management operation and and was more or less doing that with all the student housing stuff we were doing. So I was looking at apartment deals in DFW, and this one was a steal. I mean, this just, I'll, I'll probably get the numbers wrong, but just to kind of paint a picture, this was a 
150-ish unit apartment deal that someone converted to condos and I bought like 120 of them or something like that. Like the, the super majority of them for maybe 25 to 30 cents on the dollar from a replacement cost standpoint. Maybe we paid like 30 or 40 bucks a foot or something, but it was messy. I mean, because you had all these all these people that bought condos and a lot of them were investors that were renting them out. The HOA was a total mess. And it was, it was, you know, it was owned by some bank being shot by a broker. And the the debate was like, do you just make this all apartments or do you try and sell these off as individual condos? And we made this decision to sell them off as individual condos. And it was the most management intensive deal I've ever done in my life. As far as just the amount of, you had to take control of the HOA, you had to clean up that whole thing. You had to, you know, go finish some renovations and, and, you know, sell these things off on a one-off basis, but it, it lasted three or four years and was a great deal. I mean, that, I mean it was, and I, I met Sanjay through that, you know, Sanjay from Trinity private equity group, who's gone on to be one of my best friends. You guys are, are partners now. And, you know, I'm, he's, he's just an incredible dude. I met him when I had the same tied up under contract and I had a bank loan set up. I think I needed to close like 2 million equity or three, two and a half million equity or something like that. And I had a half million bucks that I was that I was going to put in myself. So I was looking to Trinity to raise the, the rest of it. I think they might have put a million and a half in. It was either their first or their second real estate deal. So this was before, you know, they'd gone on to literally do hundreds of millions of dollars in real estate equity. But it was one of their first ones. And we had like 25 days to close the deal around like the holidays or something. And barely got it done. But we were able to get it done. And, and it went on to be a good deal. So without going too much more just into the real estate side of things, you you eventually kind of moved to Kansas City and got into a whole new business. When did you kind of, what drove you to, to move to Kansas City? Why did you kind of get out of the real estate day to day and then ultimately get into a new business, which, which was around solar? So it started where I was doing some real estate deals in Kansas City. And I, I, again, this was 2009, the, probably the bottom of the market. I was just poking around up there and I, I went into an auction with no plans to really do something, but there was a literally what I would call maybe the deal of a lifetime. I bought this hundred thousand plus uh, square foot building that was just ripe for redevelopment in the middle of the crossroads district, very trendy area in Kansas city for like eight bucks a foot or something stupid like that. When, you know, it might've previously sold for 75 bucks a foot. And then that set off a sequence of events. I bought another 34 unit broken condo deal in Kansas City, a, a smaller apartment deal in Kansas City. So I was already there doing real estate. And then I was looking at putting solar on one of the apartment buildings and came across this company and then built a relationship with a guy there. And they were looking for some capital and their business was growing like crazy. And to make a long story short, I ended up buying this company or bought 90% of this company. Initially, the plans were for me not to be the full-time CEO and for it to be more of a passive deal. I had a guy that, that I had done some, some deals and in investing with that was from Fort Worth. He had moved up to Kansas City and was going to run the company. And after, I don't know how long it took, but maybe let's just call it six to nine months or something like that, there became a point where it, it, there, there was a need for more capital. Things were really taking off in a good way. And I stepped in to the CEO role and I ended up buying the other partner out of the business. So I wouldn't say that there wasn't necessarily like a master plan. It just kind of happened yep. that way. All right. So you're, you're now in, was it called Brighter G at the time or do you change that name? 
we we so the way that we did it was we started a new company called Ridergy and we acquired the assets from this other this other business that had like five or six employees and was called the energy saving store. So just kind of two minutes, like uh, you're now in the solar business. Why did you like it to begin with? And then kind of what was that journey like? You eventually exited and then maybe just a little commentary on like the state of solar today or over the last few years. Yeah, so what sparked my interest in it was, so this was this would have been my junior year of college at TCU. I actually started another business that, that we didn't talk about that invented a solar-powered real estate oh, yeah. sign light. Yeah, so that was, man, that was a crazy story, dude. So you know the story, but the, the very short version is, was we created this product. I found a partner that was a few years older than me that was a student at Cornell, and we created a really cool product, and then I got screwed, basically. He tried to claim ownership of the IP, and I had to sue him, and I won. I got a seven-figure settlement out of the deal like a year and a half later. So that also gave me some some more money to do some some real estate stuff. But through that experience, I just I learned a lot about solar technology and became pretty passionate about it. I wasn't like super into all the climate change stuff, although that that I, I do care a little bit about it. It was just more this is the future of energy, and I just believe so deeply in it. So there was that that piece of it. So then when I came across this company, there was a huge opportunity that I saw to basically create a financial product where people could put solar on their buildings and not. And basically rent the panels, so to speak. And this was, you know, this was before Tesla, or sorry, before Solar City, before Sunrun. You know, they were doing a little bit in California on the residential side, but we were really the first ones to come up with a financing product at any kind of scale for the commercial market. So that was the opportunity. And that's why I did the deal. Was I was like, I can just bring the capital here, and you know, this this operating company will go deploy this capital. And it was it was a really nice run because we had basically a monopoly on on providing this third party financing product for a while. But um, back to your question, you're asking about like, kind of like my view on solar. It's definitely, the fu- it's going to be the future source of energy. There's no doubt about it. It's at this point, I think the lowest cost or pretty darn close to the lowest cost. The challenge with, with the energy space is it's messy. There's just, there's, there's moving parts with like the grid infrastructure with a lot of legacy at like these coal plants that are very old and a lot of regulation, as it should be. I mean, it's the lifeblood of commerce. So it's a, it's a, it can be a challenging place to play from an entrepreneurial standpoint because you have federal tax incentives, you have local utilities to deal with both from an incentive standpoint and a grid connectivity standpoint. So it's a little bit of a messy business, but it's it's a sector that I, I wholeheartedly believe in. So when you bought the company, I think you had, what, 10, 15 employees? And you know, how long were you at Brightergy and what did it grow to? Yeah, so I think it started with like four or five. It started with four or five people, and ultimately got up to over 100 people, not including all the different kind of third-party contractors, which is probably another 100 to 200. 50 million revenue, 10 million EBITDA, kind of at its peak. It was operating in 17 states. We had offices on in Boston, Kansas City, St. Louis, and it was an incredible run. So it was about six six years where I was really kind of in the driver's seat of that thing before selling it. But it's where I really learned business though, because on the real estate side, it's all about the financial leverage and doing deals and the operator, the sponsor, you know, the entrepreneur really is kind of at the center of that business. Whereas with brighter G I was able to quickly learn that you can leverage human capital, you know, rather than financial capital to really scale a business and build systems. So I really enjoyed that part of it, building the executive team. But man, it was it was definitely a roller coaster. 
and to confirm, so you would, it, that business model eventually was something where you would go to like a school and say, we'll put in all the, the work and the solar work to save you on energy. And for that, we get a percentage of the savings of energy saved. And then you would be able to sell off that as like a financial product to somebody. Kind of, you, you would have to come up with these like fixed payments, but the payments were structured in a way that it was cheaper than the cost of the energy that was being supplied. Yeah, so you would, we, and again, we were in totally uncharted territory here. So we were like basically creating financial products where we would aggregate like some bank debt combined with some tax credits or tax equity capital, kind of put these things together with plans to eventually sell to some third-party finance company. But that's where it was, it was super hard because there was no playbook on how to do that. It was, I mean, it was literally like, is this legal? I don't know. Like, let's try this. And then we would make some mistakes and we'd have to, you know, keep some of these projects on our own balance sheet. I mean, to this day, I still collect annuities on these, a lot of these old solar projects because we structured them in ways that nobody would, would buy them. Right. So, but yeah, that was the general model. And I think the the, the last point on with Brightergy, which has has uh, led to like a much bigger part of your kind of career in, in the next uh, business, which we'll talk about in a bit, but you started kind of developing software and building software at Brightergy. Um, so it goes from this four or five person company to a hundred plus people, 50 million in revenue. And you really kind of transform the business into a, a very useful uh, software product by the end of it. When did you kind of realize you had to start building software and how does a non-technical guy lead kind of a software culture? Yeah, so it was a project-based business, meaning you would go out there, it was basically a sales company, but you were it was kind of lumpy in a sense that you would sell these projects and, and basically make a margin on all these different deals that you would, would sell. So that was more or less the core business. And clearly there's some flaws from a, a sustainability standpoint. There was not a lot of recurring revenue and sales were a bit lumpy. There was some seasonality, there would be federal tax credits that would come and go that would would really be kind of like boom and bust type markets. So pretty early on, I knew there, there needs to be a more sustainable business model here. So the, the whole vision was to really kind of reimagine energy and how people think about energy. So we did a number of things. We bought a service company that basically helped people buy and manage their utility bills and procure energy. So we integrated that service. And then we wanted to wrap it with some software to create a nice kind of clean interface for a business, and usually a big, these are bigger businesses that are spending thousands of dollars a month on electricity to kind of manage their energy. So there was some software for that. And then the next kind of logical step was to basically create a lightweight IoT system. So a, a relatively inexpensive way to control thermostats because that was a huge energy cost for these buildings. And schools were about 50% of Brightergy's revenue, both on the solar side and then on the energy service side. And that was the biggest need that they had. So we kind of built the software to A, try and create a recurring revenue service model, but then also we were largely going kind of where our customers were taking us and solving their problems. And then, uh, you know, to answer your question about non-technical guy building software, it's really hard. So, you know, I'll admit that I probably wasted 4 million bucks if I were to really add it up on kind of like the software that we built, that we scraped. And, you know, it's really hard. I, I, it, you learn, learn all the hard lessons about, what you should hire internally versus what you should outsource, you know, which decisions are really important to make as far as maybe the, the certain architecture, certain platforms you're using for backend language or mobile applications. I mean, there's just a, 
I would never advise somebody to do what I did. You know, the other thing too, that was, was a bit kind of a learning experience is we were a sales oriented company. I mean, that was the DNA of the company. Very, very much a competitive sales driven culture. And all of a sudden you start doing software development and it's hard. It's almost like conflicting priorities and interests and cultures so, you know, it was never a big success. It ultimately led to the spin out of Zigo, which we can talk about later, which was great. But it, it was more just kind of like lessons learned on the software side, building it at Brighter G. And my advice to like people that, you know, would, would be kind of looking at doing that is, first of all, like if, if software is not your core business, I just would almost straight up say don't do it. There's very few exceptions where I, I don't know if I've ever actually seen it be successful. Somebody kind of build a, a nice software business with inside of a, a non-software business. So, yeah, it's, it's hard. And then you make the decision to sell. Why did you decide to sell? And and what did you kind of learn throughout that process that like mistakes you made or things that you'll carry on with you the rest of your life? All right. So why, why did I sell it at that point in time? It was a beast of a company. I think I had personal guarantees on over $30 million of debt. There was some term debt on the business, some a $20 million revolving credit line. We had project-based debt. Some was not recourse, some was non-recourse. Like it was just a beast of a, of a company to maintain. So a ton of risk was really stressing me out. So that was, that was part of it. The, the volatility just, there was, there was multiple times where something very dramatic would happen. It could be Massachusetts shut down an incentive program. It could be solar rebates got ruled unconstitutional in the state of Missouri when we had literally $10 million in rebates receivable, you know, that for a period of time were cut off. Like it, it just became so risky and so volatile that it was like, this is just not a good business to, to build a big business in. And I actually believe that the space that we are playing in really should, should not, like you shouldn't have a big company in that space. It, it's really meant in my opinion, for more of the like commercial contractors of the world or, or pure sales companies out there that can be a little bit more nimble. So just for a variety of reasons, wanted to sell it. And we ran a banker-led process. You know, so you know, at this point, again, 50 million revenue, 10 million EBITDA. We were attractive to traditional private equity to, to strategic acquire. So I learned a lot through that process. And it took over a year and a half. We had it was a busted, what I would call busted process. We had a buyer that, that walked away. We had, well, we had really two buyers that walked away. And then I ultimately sold the company in a bunch of smaller transactions, which I would not advise doing because it, it, it just, it took a long time to, to sell that company. I would have been better off just selling it for a lower price up front and kind of one clean swoop. Did the whole company know you were actively engaged in selling for that year and a half? And how did that kind of impact morale when the first deal fell through? Did people, did the majority of the team know you were selling or no? Uh, and if so, were they impacted when the first deal fell through? So we were, we took a very transparent position and said, we are bringing in an outside financial partner. And obviously the question is, okay, is, is it an investor or is it an acquirer? And we didn't know, we really didn't know. So we were transparent about that too transparent in my opinion. You know, I, I, I didn't do it as transparently when I sold Zigo because it's, it's a distraction. I don't care what you say. Like on one hand, it's great to be transparent with your people. On the other hand, man, a hundred people, that's a lot of, that's a lot of responsibility. And a lot of people, you know, they can't just roll. It's a roller coaster. And so when you say it was a distraction, like just, can you 
pinpoint some things that that were distracting about it? Is it people always asking about it? People getting less motivated? All of the above? Okay, so I'll start with with the, let's just call it the core executive team. It's a mindset. It's a it, when you're saying like it, to me, it's really hard when you've made the decision to sell your business to really want to be like you don't have that you're not bringing the same passion to the day to day operations. So that that's really hard to do, and that's why you know doing it over a one and a half year period or however long it took that really sucked. So so it was it was not fun from my standpoint. I think from the employee standpoint, there was just a lot of uncertainty around like what is that? Like, what are we doing here? Like, you know, on one hand, we're like, raw, raw, let's go conquer the world. On the other hand, like we keep having all these bankers roll through and clearly like, you know, we're doing all these sales pitches and trying to, trying to bring in a financial partner. And, you know, then it got out that the first deal didn't close. And it's like, why didn't that deal close? It just creates a lot of negative. It's just not, you know, when you're building a company, you want it to be all positive And, you know, it's just, I'm not a big believer. Like you want people to, you want to be transparent with your people. You want them to, feel like they're part of it and on the inside. But the just the truth is that a lot of people just just don't you know, they're they're just not set up for the roller coaster ride. So I think that was maybe the first time we started to lose some good people. I think before that, I don't really remember losing good people. But then, you know, it, it just wasn't a great experience for me. And you know, I definitely learned a lot about working with bankers. I mean, I learned a lot about how to position your business and what buyers want, what private equity guys want versus what strategic guys want. I mean, there was just there's just so much lessons, and I, I don't regret it because I learned more running Brightergy in like that five six year period than I'll probably ever learn doing anything else, and it really set me up really great for the next one. Yep. Last question: Is there anything when you say all the learning experiences you've gone through, some of them, but is there anything you would have done differently, not related to maybe team communication, but like anything else that now that you've been through it, you wouldn't do that again? Would you hire a different banker? Would you have I mean, anything on the sale process or just in general building the business? Uh, no, on, on the sale process, like is, cause you've now, you went on to sell another company, I guess where, what, what lessons learned in the first sale have you taken on with you besides just kind of the team and the communication with the team? Yeah. Okay. So major lesson bankers, investment bankers, their job is to basically throw your deal out to a lot of people, bring people to the table and to sift through who's real and who's not. That's kind of really what they're good for. They're not great negotiators and they're, they can't read the tea leaves like you can as an owner. So that's where like, I I don't want to totally throw the banker under the bus, but our first deal, like I, if I were the one negotiating directly with the buyer, I think I probably would have maybe spotted a few months earlier or longer that that deal wasn't, going to close. So, man, it's tough. I, I, and bankers, you know, one thing a lot of people don't realize, if you go hire a mid-tier bank like an RW Baird or Credit Suisse or those guys, like, you know, you're looking at a million dollar minimum fee with those guys. And and some of the bigger ones like Goldman and Credit Suisse, they want $3 million minimum fees. So, you know, like it, it just didn't, honestly, it just didn't feel like, like if they could, you know, maybe get multiple buyers really bidding your deal up, you know, and they're bringing people to the table, they're worth it. But in my experience, that just wasn't the case. They brought people to the table that I kind of already knew and we didn't transact. So I definitely did not have the best experience with bankers and didn't use one the next time around. But I also think that some businesses, it is appropriate to bring a banker in. All right. So you sell and you take a little bit of a break. And how did you get the inspiration for your next company, Zigo? And yeah, how did that all come about? So Zigo... I'll start by just kind of explaining what 
what Zigo's initial product was. The the vision for, for Zigo was to automate and replace on-site apartment property managers. It kind of goes back to my experience in the apartment business where I just really did not like the property management industry. I thought there was so much inefficiency, the incentives weren't aligned, the the quality of the people wasn't the best. Like I just there's just so much that I that I wanted to change. And we had this core technology that we built at Brightergy around IoT device management, controlling thermostats in school in school buildings. And there's a lot of money and a lot of time invested in that. And when Brightergy was sold, that entire team of people was and at one point it was like 25 people, but then we did some layoffs and it got down to like six badass people. And a few things were going on. I wanted to keep that team busy to start another company with. I knew I was going to do that. We had this technology that we already built, but I wasn't crazy about selling it into schools. And there was almost like a direct translation and value proposition in the apartment business. Meanwhile, so Scott Everett of S2 Capital is a buddy of mine. We, we went back to like 2011, try to do some deals together. And you know, Scott's gone on to like do 20,000 apartments. I mean, the guy's a legend. So I started talking with him back in, it was 2016, early 2017, just about some ideas around using this technology in apartments. And they were actually looking at some smart home IoT stuff with, with somebody that went on to be a competitor of ours. So I kind of had all these pieces together. I had this badass core uh, software engineering development team. I have this technology that we've already invested in. I have Scott that that became an investor and a partner, but most importantly, our first customer. And we had his entire portfolio, you know, 10,000 plus units in his team to basically be our lab to build and roll this product. So I just had all these pieces together and and decided to go with it to start Zigo. So that was kind of like the initial founding story. The other thing that was pretty notable about and the formation of Zigo was you know, I, I knew the apartment space very well. And there was a, we, we did this Techstars program. So Techstars is an incredible global organization. It's an accelerator. And I normally would not want to do an accelerator, but they were coming to Kansas City for the first time. Lisa Mitchell, the managing director that runs that program was really great. And it was in the summer of 2017. And it was just a really great time to kind of draw the line in the sand from Brightergy for me to take these, you know, this core group of people and start this thing. So. You know, everything just kind of fell together yep. the right way. We won't go too much into the actual business as ego, but the interesting part there, it was a it was a technology business built in Kansas City. And you and I had a conversation, it was probably a year ago. I, I uh and you were like, I either need to go all in on this thing um and grow it to be huge, or I think I could, you know, even in a short period of time, call it a year and a half, two years, I think we already have something that we could sell for a reasonable amount. And uh investors do well, you do well, the team does well. Uh, I guess my first question is, um, why like what made you decide to sell, you know, in a short period of time versus going all in? Yeah. So there's, you know, that's kind of a, there's a long answer to that question. So there's, I love, first of all, I love the product that we were building. I liked the industry that we were in. I love the team and I had a badass group of investors. I was fortunate enough to basically handpick the investors, which were a combination of, of VCs. So I wanted some VCs in there because I was on the venture train basically. And we can talk about that, but you, you're building a business differently when you're taking venture money. So I had some venture guys in there. I had friends like you, you know, as investors, and then guys like Scott and other apartment owners. So at an incredible group of people, we had a lot of traction. We, but we basically got to this fork in the road where 
we were going to raise an A round or sell the company. And leading up to that, I was working on, I, 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 from day one, I knew that there was four or five like major incumbents that were serving 10 million plus apartment units with either like a core kind of accounting property management software product or payment processing technology. And I just knew that, that partnering with one of them would be the way to get our products in the market. It didn't necessarily need to be a selling to them, but a partnership. So a lot of those relationships were laid like really early on in the formation of Zego. And it just so happened to like, be like, I kind of teed everything up where I was, it was more or less kind of running a fake, I don't want to call it a fake process, but I knew that we were going to raise a funding round. And I knew that one of these partners was potentially interested in buying us. So I basically ran a mini process to try and bring a couple of different buyers to the table while at the same time, bringing some VCs to the table to really look at what an A round of funding would look like. And for me, it was, you're going to raise five to $7 million and you're signing up for another couple of years. And there was a lot of risk in front of that business. And, and I, I won't get too far into the weeds because it was pretty specific to the industry, but there's just a lot of risk. And, you know, I just, I, I thought it was a prudent thing to do. And we sold, I don't want to say what the exact price we sold for, but it was a lot of money. Real, I, I mean, I'll look back on that and be like, man, that was, it was only like 18 months from start to finish. Like it, it was pretty incredible what we did both from a product standpoint and, and a financial standpoint. Um, the other thing I'll say that's, that's a very personal thing is, so I have four kids and I don't remember, you remember how many kids I had that time. I think I only had maybe two or three. Oh, I, I think I had three. So no, wait, no I, I had all four of my kids. I, one of my kids is special needs. He's autistic. And I just really felt like, you know, my time just needed to be look, look, spend more on my family. And it just didn't feel right to be taking in a $5 million, $7 million, whatever it was, check from VCs when I was just kind of distracted. So it all came together really quick within the period of a couple months, ran this little mini process and, and then got the deal done. And, and I sold it to, to Paylease, which is owned by Vista Equity Partners. And that was also really interesting because Vista is the most badass private equity firm on the planet. You know, the biggest B2B uh, private equity firm out there, B2B software. They have a really unique way of doing business. And I just really clicked with those guys. And I, I, I thought this would, this would be a great experience to, to sell a company to them and kind of just see on the inside how they operate. You think there's a lot of other people that start these businesses that one could probably sell earlier and actually make some money, but because they take that series A round, it puts that pressure to, to grow at all costs, often at no profitability. It turns what could have been a profitable small venture into a larger money loser. Like, do you think more people should take that route or was it unique to you? hundred percent more people should consider that route. I should, I'll, I'll say, because here's what happens when you take venture funding. So if a series A, so let's just say people put in, I raised a little bit more than two and a half million, but that even wasn't the full story. Cause a lot of that was my money. And then some of that was at the very end. But when you take venture money, they're not happy really with like a, a one and a half or two X your money they, they want 10 times their money. So if we were to take that $5 million series A, you know, let's just call it a 10 or $15 million valuation. I mean, you're really, for everyone to be happy, you're going to have to sell a company for 50 plus million dollars or more. So if you think about what has to happen, or actually that's not even right. It's really more like a hundred million dollars. And that's just, that's a lot harder, you know, than selling a business for, let's just call it sub $25 million. Because I do think that there's a lot of big companies out there that the reality of a company that's, you know, a couple hundred million dollars in market cap, or even like a, 
just Paley, for example, the reality of them building something as technically complex as what Ziga built, it's just not going to happen. So I, I think that you start getting that sub $25 million sale price range and you make really strong arguments that they should just go buy it versus trying to build it internally because it's not really an option. But if you get above $25 million, for example, then it's it's just harder for them to justify unless you have real significant revenue, which you're not going to get until you're several years into the business and probably after that Series A round. And my, my last question on Zigo, and then I want to move on to family and personal things. Okay, if you do decide to sell, um, actually, I have two more questions. If you're going to sell something kind of early on, like what uh, milestone did you have to achieve to even be a viable candidate at a, call it a sub $25 million purchase price? We, our product was awesome. We, we had a lot, like a lot of industry buzz around our product. The, the metrics, the metrics around like the utilization, the retention of the users, it was just, it was just the best product on the market. And, and they knew that. And then the last question, why is, uh, what, what about Vista makes them such a badass private equity company, uh, apart from their peers? So they have a playbook and they, they have a playbook on everything from how do they run like inside sales to HR and recruiting. And they have, you know, best, they, they have a playbook for every single aspect of the business. And then they, they have such big scale that they bring everybody together and you do things their way. And it's a proven way of doing it. And the, the guys that the, the founder is like an engineer basically. And, you know, he, he's approached private equity the same way I would. And he stays in the same kind of B2B software world. And, you know, they got a playbook and they just execute that playbook. Yep. I, I keep saying the last question, but you keep saying things that I want to know about. Uh, you said it was your product was awesome. My last, then I, I will make this the last one, but like, uh, how in a short answer, do you develop an awesome product? Do you just relentless focus on the customer and customer feedback? Um, and, and there was a podcast I was listening to the other day that said there's been more value created in just getting a few little things right on the user experience. Cause there's all these, there's several other companies that were building stuff like you were building or in the same space, but the product yours, uh, obviously stood out and, and the comment on the other podcast was like hundreds of billions of dollars of value have been created just from the companies that can do these tiny little things differently that make the user experience much better. So I, I think there were two things that jump out that we did well. One was the simplicity of the user interface. So to, to your point, like we had a pretty simple product, but it was, so the other thing was just the industry knowledge. I mean, the, what we were able to do with Scott and S2, that is literally priceless. I mean, I would, the next company I start, like I want to do something similar, having a engaged customer that you can, like we made so many mistakes. Like it's hilarious if I were to tell you all, all the mistakes that we made for their company and their, you know, like just bugs in the software, like messages getting sent out to residents that were wrong. Any other customer would have fired you. They'd be like, your product's not ready. But because they were part of it from day one, you know, that was invaluable. All right, let's move on to to uh, quickly family and and kind of how that all evolves. So the, the Adam that I knew in college um, was the Adam that was often willing to stay up till midnight or 2 a.m. and and work and grind it out. Um, and I feel like you've become, uh, don't take this the wrong way, but softer over time. And I mean that in a as a compliment. Um, you have four kids, you've been married, you have a son with autism. Um, just kind of like maybe the question is just how has your perspective changed over time? And I thought that was really cool of you to just say, 
you know, you like didn't even feel right taking a five or seven million dollar seed round based on the family situation. When did you kind of start thinking like this? And does it take having kids to do it or, you know, just dive a little deeper there? I think it's it's impactful. So one benefit that I have is I, I basically like had a fast track in my career. I was more or less independently wealthy in my early to mid 20s before I started having kids. That was the best thing that ever happened for me. I mean, then I just was able to you know take all the risks and stuff kind of like before I before it really mattered. Having kids, getting married, maybe changing things a little bit. It was really this point where I, I, I had a girl. I don't know. I had two boys and two girls. My first girl, I felt like really, for whatever reason, I don't even know how to explain it, changed me the most. I think I might have became a little bit softer, kind of just more in tune with how you treat people and, and whatnot. And then it was just over the last couple of years, I think, recognizing what's in, I shouldn't say the last couple of years, maybe 2011, 2012. So seven or eight years ago, I kind of had a mindset shift. And a lot of it was just part of some of these groups that I'm involved in, whether it's YPO or I went to the state and integral leadership program. And I kind of takeaway was like, what's really important? What are your core values? What's your purpose in life? What brings you happiness? And for me, it ultimately came down to freedom and optionality and my family. So I think I had the luxury of, of being kind of financially free, so to speak, with having the kids. And I just realized like that's what's what's most important. So you know all my all my decisions at the end of the day kind of come back to what's best, what's best for the family. But all that being said, like even after selling my company and and taking time off, I haven't been working this company sold in April of 2019. So a full a full year ago. And I haven't been working at all for about six months. I still have the same level of intensity that I had before. As far as I just, I'm just directing it to different areas of my life, whether it's trying to optimize my health or optimize the relationship with my wife and investing in her. That's like one of the things I've, I've, I've really tried to kind of pour some energy into because I've done so much investing in myself, just, just like you have. But my wife really hasn't had that same luxury. So I'm just trying to kind of pour my energy into different areas. And the other big thing is I don't have the stress of running a business, but it's still a lot of like you know, staying up late, hustling, working on stuff. It's just not directly channeled into a business. Yep. And will you just chat a little bit just about your son? We've talked a lot about him, uh, and I know that's been a, a big part of your life and even s- s- things that have made you passionate uh, within that kind of autistic spectrum space. Yeah, so, I mean, I have a son that's been diagnosed with autism, and I knew nothing about it, you know, before that. And I now know a lot. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's just a sad thing, I mean, because... Some kids are very, like, you can barely tell, but there's clearly something wrong, like wrong. Their brain just doesn't work the right way. And whereas other kids are just totally um, nonverbal. So they're, they're, there's totally a wide spectrum. The, the actual industry itself and, like, kind of how you take care of and treat kids hasn't changed much in, like, the last 30 years. So that's part of what attracted me to, to kind of go deeper into this space is it's just like any entrepreneur. It's like, what's going on here? Why don't we have a cure for this? Why can't we figure out what causes it? So I've kind of gone pretty deep into and it's really led me more to the life science side and trying to understand kind of the R and D behind it. And I've made a few investments in different companies because I do think that, that this is an industry industry that just hasn't seen the level of kind of like entrepreneurial investment. It's kind of it's seen a ton of research and development like in universities, but it, it needs more kind of on the business side. So that's where, you know, I've had a lot of discussions about different opportunities in that space. And, and another, another way that I look at it is, 
I, I'm going to be connected to the world of autism like my entire life. Like that's that's not something that's going to go away. So it's so it's an area that I want to make a difference in. But it's also something that I'm like really passionate about. And I, I one thing I know for for certain, like you know, as we think about kind of COVID and what I want to do next and everything, I want to be 100% passionate about whatever it is that I do. And like I, I used to have this source of inspiration that a lot of came back to my pain and suffering from a financial standpoint and just starting at the bottom, nothing to lose man, like I don't ever want to put myself and my family in that situation, but I don't have that anymore. You know, like I'm, I'm set. So now it's about like, what else, what can be the next thing that drives me? So, you know, from a selfish standpoint, I look at, look at that. I'm like, man, that's something that I can, just, just gets me fired up and something that I want to go, I want to go make a difference. And so that's really kind of like, you know, I'm connected to, to autism in multiple ways. We'll finish off on kind of where we are today and what's next. But you sent me, um, and you had briefly just touched on it, a weekly review, which uh, hit me like a ton of bricks yesterday. But it it has your kind of core values listed out, um, which are family first, growth and learning always improve, responsibility, control your destiny, discipline, uh, intense focus, and freedom. And then you just go on to mention you know, just like little things in the document, um, just about your health, uh, what makes you happy, what doesn't make you happy, things that you need to kind of constantly be reminded of. Uh, how did you come up with making this? And when you were going through the process, did you realize that you were doing a lot of things every day that actually weren't making you happy? Or were you? did you realize that most of your day had already been spent doing things that you uh, you know, wanted to do. So this, this started in like 2011, 13 time frame. I don't remember exactly when, but it was a byproduct of the Stegen integral leadership program deal that I did down in Dallas. And it was, it was life-changing. And, and it's basically a program that's, it's really meant for people that are running bigger businesses where you've got different departments and executives, but kind of a, one of the the pillars to the program is really understanding who you are and your core values. And then there's a lot kind of more that goes you get into like how do you do your annual planning your weekly planning even down to like how you do how do you schedule your day and time blocking so it's basically a framework on on kind of how to manage your life and i i really embraced it but then i've also added on to it over the years kind of from some different things that i that i've learned you know about myself you know i've tried to be like really mindful around how when am i happiest like how do i maximize my productivity and and i part of what I do is I do this weekly review, which is the you know two page document that I shared you. And it just, it kind of grounds me. It reminds me of what's important. And it's not just my core values that there's like a paragraph or two at each one to be more specific about, you know, kind of how much time I want to spend with my family and you know all this different stuff. And it's just, for me, it's the best thing because it every week it lets me plan my week and reminds me kind of what's important. Yep. I love it. If I had told you in February, well, maybe not February, if I told you January 1st that um, that planes would be running at 5% capacity, uh, automobile manufacturing would be done, oil would hit negative 35 bucks a barrel, and so on, you, you might not have believed me, but that's the world we're in right now due to COVID. One, you're not running a business now, so you uh, have a lot of time to think and um, kind of soak in what's going around. What are you thinking and seeing and feeling right now? I would say I'm sad right now. I'm just, I'm just sad. 
Can you expand just a little bit? Is it because of what you see coming or what you see that's already been done and just kind of playing that out over the next couple of years? Is it because you have personal, you know, friends that have been laid off or just all of the above? I think it's all of the above. I mean, this was just a total shock to the world, basically. And it's it, it, it hits it's impacting every aspect of life and every single business, every single family an individual is impacted in a way that's probably not good. I know there's some silver linings here and there, but yeah. And it's, a, I mean, it's a real course, man. Like at times I'm like, I'm grateful. I'm grateful for my family and all the time we can spend together. And some ways I'm grateful that I'm not running a company because man, what a tough time. But on the other hand, like, I'm also like, I want to be in the trenches. Like I'm, I'm meant for this. Like I, 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 I am jealous of the stress you guys are going through. So man, it's just, it's a roller coaster, but I would say the more recent over the last week or two, it's just sadness because you know, the reality is, is that, that, that there's just like a lot of people that I'm really close to are, are being impacted in, in major ways. And it's just, it's just kind of sad. Is there anything particular that stood out to you uh, with the data up to now that, uh, that makes, that, that paints kind of a, a negative picture? And is there anything that you've seen now that's giving you some optimism or is it more kind of like industry specific or specific to the situation? Yeah. So I'll start by saying that you know, as far as the data itself related to the virus and kind of what what's happening, I've been very frustrated because you have really like, like there's there's it's not clear to me like what the death rate is, what the R naught is, and like all these different things. You have really smart people taking totally different positions on this. You know, the data from the hospitals isn't accurate. The testing data is not the tests like don't even work a lot of the time. Like so, the data has just been frustrating. And then you have kind of the media that 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 it's almost like they're rooting against America and like wanting to be super negative about everything. So I I've been able to find the most value as far as like what's going on in the world and how is this impacting people really by just talking to people. So that's, that's definitely been like kind of one takeaway is, is I've, I've become very grateful for my relationships to be able to just lean on people like you and say, what are you actually seeing? Like, how is this, how is this crisis kind of like impacting the real world? So I, th- I already forgot your question, but you know, that's what, that's what kind of one observation is, man. Like there's been a hard thing to get the facts straight on. Yep. Well then I'll just, the, the question there is just, what do you see for the next year? Are you, do you see, uh, this is going to be a, a long drawn out, really tough thing is like, there anything that gives you optimism that, you know, things could look good a year, 18 months from now. So I think the optimism side is that this virus is not as bad as far as it's not as deadly as I initially thought, you know, I, I remember seeing these videos of like people dropping dead in China and people walking around in in hazmat suits and everything. And I'm just like, Oh my God, like this is, this is bad. But so I think that is the silver lining is that we're learning. It's not, not as deadly. So that means that it's something that we can live with and, you know, have a partially functioning world, although it's not going to be the same as it was before. So as I think about kind of like the next year, and, and to be more specific, kind of like, I'm not going to get into like the, the virus stuff, but like just the, the impact on the economy and the business, like it's very nasty because you have like, it's very industry specific, clearly like hospitality and travel and entertainment and restaurants, like those businesses are just decimated and putting those pieces back together. Like that just doesn't happen. But then what's what's really scary to me is you start looking into areas like tech, for example, and home service businesses and all the, you know, all these different sectors with people I know, whether it's through YPO or just kind of my network, 
every business is impacted. And what they're doing is they're laying people off, they're furloughing workers, and they're they're renegotiating contracts, they're cutting costs, and all that is obviously just very bad for the economy. And you know, it all ha- it all hasn't hit us yet, but it's just like you you think about the next year, and these things are all like you can't reverse anything I just mentioned. Like that's happened in ways that are just like kind of hard to fathom, but. I just, I don't see anything, like, I don't see how we get anywhere kind of close to, to where we were, you know, three or four months ago from an economic standpoint. Like, to me, the damage is done, man. And then, you know, I just think it's going to take a while, though, for kind of the, the destruction to be known and for the assets to reprice and to really kind of see how things shake out. Yep. Yeah. No, I I was talking uh, to somebody yesterday is just this idea of, okay, we're opening back up, but even just for these people that have been at home or that might not be in business and seeing kind of economic data or, or talking and networking with people that are able to share um, some of the information that you and I are privy to, you know, just walking into a restaurant and getting your temperature checked at the door, your waiter has a mask on there. It's, you know, people are spread out all over that in and of itself is is a little bit demoralizing. Um, and my hope is that we get past that quick. I know people have short memories, but I think that's a whole new wave of kind of this thought process that people are going to have to go through over the, the months coming up is just how much, you know, the things they took for granted ha- have changed. I mean, yeah. how long do you think that lasts? That this, this world of basically social distancing and stores halfway open, restaurants halfway open, you're wearing masks and you can't touch people. Well, back to our initial comments on the media, I think the media, my personal opinion is that this is the Super Bowl for them as far as something to talk about and the, the, just the media cycle and the things they can come up with to talk about. It seems like we're still really early on. So as long as the media keeps it front and center, um, I think, you know, it continues on. And then as far as, you know, not the media is, you know, Texas will be open much earlier than California and New York, and there will be states that that get there quicker, um, but there are states that won't be. I mean, I think it could be two or three years until there's some feeling of walking out of your front door without that thought in your mind at all. So I kind of agree with that. I think the next year or two years is it's going to be a lot of kind of where we're at right now. Like, you know, this the idea of this virus going away, like that's not going to happen. And, you know, it's just man, that's what, that's what just kind of makes me sad is that, that this new world isn't as fun as the last world was. Does this give you uh, any different perspective on what your next move is? Do you think you start doing your next uh, venture sooner than you would have? Or does this actually put it on pause while you wait to see where things settle? Um, and does it give you inspiration uh, in any one industry or sector that maybe you didn't have before? The short answer is I'm putting everything on pause. So if I if I take a step back, you know, I think for some people that are very passionate about an idea or kind of had something fully baked, now actually is a great time to start a company if you if you can resource it the right way, because it's just a I don't know I just I think that there's a lot of people a lot of talents freeing up and and I, I do believe that some businesses make sense to start. But for someone like me, like I was kind of teeing myself up to to work on a passion project that was that would be a long-term, you know, very risky, potentially not financial rewarding type endeavor. So that was predicated on the old world. And like, you know, I'm an investor in 60 plus different private deals and 
just, I, I got to like assess the damage, so to speak on, you know, I had all this, all these ideas on income streams and whatnot. So I got to just kind of put a pause and see, see what, what's going to happen there. You know, the other thing too, is there, th- this could be a once in a generation money making opportunity. We, I, I am starting to see glimpses of distress in a lot of different areas, but it's so early. I mean, it is so early and I just think it would be so stupid for me to do something right now. So I'm just going to kind of wait and see. There could be something opportunistic to do. I hope not. I hope I, I obviously would, would rather, rather that not be the case and, and for, for some things to get better. But I, I just, I think there's a pretty decent probability that there's going to be a lot of distress and a lot of opportunities to invest time and capital and I kind of want to see how things shake out a little bit. I, I don't think I want to necessarily be purely opportunistic with, with my time on what I do next, but I, I think that it, it, this definitely could impact, you know, what I do more on the opportunistic side. Adam, thank you. Uh, thanks again, man, for, for chatting with me. It means a lot. And our relationship is, uh, means a lot to me. And I look forward to the, the coming year of just talking and hearing more about what you're seeing and thinking, uh, it always is something I, I hang on to. Yeah, of course, man. And I, you know, obviously value our relationship as well. I enjoy your podcast and look forward to keep talking with you, man, and in the relationship for years to come. Hey, everyone, it's Chris here again. Thank you so much for joining me on this journey. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, leave a five-star rating or write a quick review. Thanks again, and I'll see you on the next episode. Chris Powers is the founder and CEO of Fort Capital LP. All opinions from Chris and guests of the Fort podcast are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Fort Capital LP. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for real estate or investment decisions. The Fort with Chris Powers is produced by Straight Up Podcasts.